Hello, everyone. I'm only here for a moment before I hand over to our guest host for this week's episode, who is my utterly fabulous friend, Carrie Summers. She's the co-founder of Fashion Revolution. And I'm going to leave it up to her to tell you all about why. All I will say here is that Fashion Revolution has this incredible garden happening at the world's most famous flower show, the Chelsea Flower Show, which is happening right now in London. It's really quite a lovely story. And actually, I was going to just mention, there's a bit where they talk about William Morris, the great British arts and crafts master. And as it turns out, he used to get his textiles made in the town where Carrie now lives. It's called Leek, and it's famous for the history of textile dyeing in the river there. It's so interesting. And I thought, if you're into this, if you like to follow threads through these stories, there's a lovely one with William Morris, because If you go back to episode 144, which is with J.B. McKinnon, all about his book, The Day the World Stopped Shopping, that's inspired by William Morris, by a a thought, a kind of thought experiment novel that he wrote. So interesting. And the one after that with Lynn Slater also talks about William Morris. I love these threads. So if you enjoy that, check them out. In fact, don't stop there because... The companion episode to this one is, in fact, number 112, where Carrie and I sit down and talk all about microfibers. So you got some listening to do, and I've got some traveling to do. I'm about to get on a plane and go and see my family for the first time in a ridiculous amount of time. So enjoy. Let us know what you think. You can check out The Garden and all the news from Fashion Rev on their Instagram at Fashion Revolution. You can find me, as you know, I'm at Mrs. Press. And of course, the links and show notes are at thewardrobecrisis.com as usual. All right, I'm off. I said that so quick, didn't I? Because I'm going, I'm getting on a plane. (laughs) Enjoy this lovely, lovely episode with Carrie Summers. For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello everyone, I'm Carrie Summers, the co-founder of Fashion Revolution, and I'm delighted to be your guest host for the Wardrobe Crisis podcast this week. Today I am going to be talking about our clothes, of course, and the transformative power of the plants to be found literally on our doorsteps. Throughout history, plants have played a fundamental role in fashion, as dyes, fibres, floral motifs and in botanical folklore, connecting us to a place, a story or a culture. At the end of May, the grounds of the Royal Hospital in London host the world-famous RHS Chelsea Flower Show. And this year, for the first time ever, there will be a garden solely featuring plants that can be used to make or dye our clothes. A textile garden for Fashion Revolution will be part of the new All About Plants category, supported by Project Giving Back. And when I'm talking about plants here, I'm not talking about plants like cotton that we more traditionally associate with textiles. Being in the UK, we will mostly be using native varieties. Now, of course, some of these are plants you might expect to find in the garden, like alliums and irises. Others are ones that some gardeners might pull out of their gardens as weeds. Or ones you might find growing out from between cracks in the pavement on your streets, like stinging nettles. 
or growing in the hedgerows like foxgloves, violets and cow parsley. Now, there's a quote I love from John Steinbeck, which goes, I do wonder if there will come a time when we can no longer afford our wastefulness. So I hope this podcast will inspire you to look differently at dandelions. Today, I'm going to be talking to two of the people who have been working with me over the past year to bring to life this garden at Chelsea Flower Show. Textile designer turned garden designer, Lottie de la Maine, and Kate Turnbull, Head of Fashion and Textiles Design at Headington School in Oxford, where the garden will be relocated after the show. I hope you enjoy the interview. So welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Lottie Delamain and Kate Turnbull. Thanks for having us, Karen. Thank you, Claire. What an honour to be here. And I'm very excited to be here too and talk about my plant and dye obsession. How exciting. Lottie, could you start? Tell us a plant love story. And since this is our theme, can you make it one with the textiles or a natural dyes connection, please? A plant love story. Okay, so a tree that I really love, I have recently fallen even more in love with since finding out that it has this amazing connection to natural dyes. So when we lived in Vietnam, there were these beautiful trees that lined the streets called acacia catachu. And they have these beautiful, as lots of acacias do, these beautiful, very small pinnate leaves that kind of shimmer and dance in the light. And they were they line the streets, they're huge, and they are there to create shade. They also have these incredible seed pods, which are these long, snaky kind of sculptural forms that I used to collect and have them on my dining room table as kind of ornaments. And the kids would collect them and use them as rattles. And my mum, when she came out to visit, snuck one into her suitcase and very sweetly had it cast in bronze for me for our wedding, my husband and I's wedding present. Recently, when researching the project that we're now all working on together, I discovered that this amazing tree is the source of kutch. And kutch is a dye that's been used for thousands of years, and it's from the heartwood of the acacia tree, and it creates a beautiful, beautiful, rich russet brown. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you, Lottie. What about you, Kate? What's your plant love story? Well, I would say mine from a, an early age would be a, a blossom tree. And I know that's a bit sort of uh, girly and, and frothy and pink. But I think that since my teenage years, when I got a little bit more into art history, falling in love with Van Gogh's blossom tree uh, studies, and then seeing some of the sort of Japanese beautiful cherry blossom branch um, drawings, Hiroshige, Hokusai, that sort of thing, I became really sort of fascinated with blossom. And about 10 years ago, I went to um, the Ashmolean to see the Threads of Silk and Gold exhibition and the beautiful silks from Japan. They had been hand spun and dyed and skillfully woven into wonderful wall hangings and a lot of them would depict blossoms. So I bought tickets to go to Japan to see the Hanami, um, the Blossom Festival, so I could sort of see for myself all these wonderful blossom trees. And there is something very, very magical when you're there seeing the sea of pink floating above you and then the wind blows and you've got this sort of snowstorm of, of petals carpeting the ground. Very, very beautiful. And I would say that now I sort of really love to use cherry blossom to dye with. It's the branches are full of tannin. So it's not the blossom petals themselves, but the tannins. And it makes the most wonderful, rich, warm, pinky caramel colour when you use them to extract dye from. And they're also amazing pollinators. 
they're a good sort of early source of, of pollen um, for bees and, and other pollinators and also look very, very pretty. So I love a blossom tree. <laughs> mm, me too. I have a beautiful cherry blossom right outside my window now and it's looking amazing. So that's going to go in my dye vat sometime soon, I think. What about you, Carrie? Well, I'm going to choose quite an unexpected one, I think. I'm going to choose Weld. Over the past two years, I've been doing a lot of research into natural dyes in Ireland for a novel which I'm trying to write about my fourth great-grandmother, who was a migrant French lace maker. But I was intrigued to come across a reference to Augustinian monks who were saffron-dyeing linen in the, in the 12th century. And this dye wasn't quite what it seemed because saffron, the dried stigma of the crocus sativus, didn't even arrive on the Irish shores until the 15th century. So plants like agrimony and bog myrtle and buckthorn and marsh marigold and meadowsweet, pennywort, water pepper, many other plants were all called into service for the production of what they called saffron yellow. But none of these equaled weld for that intensity of hue. Now, if anyone's seen weld, it's really sort of unprepossessing, weedy-looking plant from the cabbage family with tall yellow spires. And I think this is probably why I was drawn to it, because I was the kind of shy, weedy kid at school who would never dare to put their hand up in class, let alone speak in front of a crowd of people like we're doing at the moment. But Weld is transformed into an exhibitionist once it hooks up with the right mordant. And maybe it was the same for me, you know, I just needed to find the right environment in which to shine. And if you look at that brilliant yellow dyed by Wells, I think it's no wonder that there was a saying in Ireland, there is yellow and then there is great yellow. And that's what Weld was. Weld was great yellow for the Irish. Now, Lottie, there's a quote on your website where you describe what you do and you say pattern, colour, texture and form are the building blocks of garden design. But gardens, particularly our one at Chelsea Flower Show, are also about weaving ideas and stories together through plants. So what's your take on how our garden at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show is going to do that? Well, yes. It's true. I do really think gardens should be about telling a bit of a story. I think it's important that places have something beyond, I just like the look of it, attached to them, that people feel an emotional connection to them, that people can tell stories about the places that they inhabit and they live. The goal for this garden was to make real this connection between plants and textiles, for people to realise that what they're wearing comes from plants or should come from plants. Unfortunately, now lots of what we're wearing comes from petrochemicals. So we had to find a way to create a garden that really spelt this out to people. So we've done that in two ways. The first is by creating a garden that hopefully looks and feels a bit like a textile. And the second is by using this incredible textile installation that Kate has been making for us, which is made entirely from plants. So I started originally by making a weave out of paper, like you did at school, folding them over and weaving them in, in between each other. And it was based on a design by Annie Albers. Annie Albers has always been a bit of a design hero of mine. She's obviously a very established textile designer. And her designs have always slightly looked like garden designs to me. 
this weave became the blueprint for the garden. So I digitized it, I scaled it up and it became the floor plan. So there are swathes of planting, which are going to be grouped into colors. The planting is all dye and fiber plants, and these will be repeated to hopefully imitate the look of a textile. There are ribbons of bricks and paving, which are supposed to feel a bit like a stitch being woven in between the planting. I've got great big dye vats, reflective pools, which are going to actually be active dye vats. We'll have fabric being dyed during Chelsea Flower Show. We've also got this incredible textile installation made by Kate, which is an iteration of this same design, but on the vertical plane. So this is swathes of fabric. UK flax dyed using plants grown in the garden to really make clear the link between plants and textiles and reveal the beauty to be found in plant-based textiles and fibres. As you've just said, Lottie, you know, this isn't how the industry works today. Natural dyes are not the norm in fashion. And although we still use natural fibres, synthetics have taken over and in a massive way. Estimates vary, but synthetic fibres are present in around two-thirds of the textiles we produce and we wear. And this figure has doubled in the past 20 years. And we're seeing the results in a very visible way. There's the mountains of clothing waste made from synthetic materials and coated with chemicals which are piling up in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And billions of plastic microfibres that end up in our environment and in our bodies. A fashion revolution is working with the universities of Kiel and Loughborough on a project called Restoring Riverscapes. And our research team put just eight cotton and polyester blend lab coats through one wash and dry cycle. And this produced five millilitres of microfibres. I mean, this is you know, quite a chunk of microfibres at the bottom of a test tube. Now, imagine that multiplied out by every wash, every street, every town. According to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, laundry alone causes around half a million tonnes of plastic microfibres a year to be released into the ocean. And it's not just the fibres that give cause for concern. Microfibres contain an accumulation of toxic chemicals, which aren't only prevalent in the environment, but they're also entering our bodies, they're disrupting our endocrine systems. The worldwide fertility rate is apparently dropping by nearly 1% a year. And this is largely due to those hormone-altering chemicals, many of which we do find in our clothing. But our research for the Fashion Transparency Index, which, which Fashion Revolution carries out every year into the 250 biggest brands in the world, found that only a quarter of them are publishing any information about what harmful or hazardous substances they prohibit in the manufacturing process. Now, I think it's just worth saying at the outset that not all natural fibres are created equal as well. You know, most of us will have heard those statistics about how cotton uses more pesticides and insecticides than any other crop and its high levels of water consumption and pollution. But you might not know that natural fibres also pass through chemical processes, you know, that could be mercerisation in the case of cotton, regeneration in the case of viscose. And this gives them a different cell structure, one that doesn't appear in nature. And then we see further chemical treatments such as bleaching, dyeing, repellents, flame retardants, softeners, 
all of this means that most natural fibres do not simply disappear in the waterways and the oceans. In fact, natural fibres account for over 70% and in some cases 80% of the total fibres found in samples which are being collected from freshwater marine waters, animals and the atmosphere. So that, in a large nutshell, is how the fashion industry works today. And it's clear that there aren't any easy answers, but this just gives you a, an idea of the huge scale of the problem. So, Kate, for those who are new to this topic, who are new to thinking about natural dyes, can you just tell us how do we define natural dyes and how were they used historically? So natural dyes, we can find in our hedgerows, um, we can find them in our cupboards. They are things that we can extract colour from that are not chemical. And this sort of dates back to sort of the Iron Age. I think there was people found in the, one of the bog people in Denmark. Um, there was a, a woman there, they researched some of her, her textiles and they were made up of, of three different colours, which was a real surprise because, you know, our idea of sort of Iron Age man was, you know, wearing earthy colours. But in fact, they discovered there was woad, madder and weld were used. So these are the three colours for, so woad would be blue, for extracting blue from the leaves. You've got the, the madder, the root of the madder plant, um, which was indigenous, and that would have created the red. And then, of course, you've got the weld, which you were chatting about earlier. And of course, these three colours are the primary colours. So they would be used to in many, many combinations to make lots of different colours. You know, with the blue and the yellow, you know, you can make the green. You'd have to dye with one and over-dye with another and you could get these fantastic colours. And with the madder and the weld, so with the red and the yellow, you could make an orange. And I think this was a real surprise looking back and, and seeing that these wonderful colours go so very far back. As far as the Iron Age, it's, it's quite incredible. And, you know, we began to import uh, dye stuff from Asia. In the medieval times, it became a real trading commodity. And actually, it was really social status would, would dictate if you were wearing something that was cochineal, you had these pinks, you know, you would be of very high social status. And I think they brought in these sumptuary laws so that would prohibit sort of some of the lower classes from wearing some of these colours that were associated with more wealthy people. But I think that all around us, we have these wonderful things at our fingertips that we can use. We look in our hedgerows, we've got things like goldenrod, sumac, dandelions, nettles, cherry bark, marigold, cosmos, elderberry, all of these things, they're, they're there ready for us to use. We don't need the chemicals. You know, in the sort of 1860s, I think it was Peter Grease who invented sort of azo dyes, which are very, very chemical heavy. And that's really what was the end of natural dyeing at that time, because throughout the 18 hundreds and into the 1900s, people were really developing these chemical dyes, which are so very, very harmful. And we know that now. And it's great to see this resurgence of, of natural dyeing. I mean, you look at Instagram, you go on YouTube, and there are so many hubs of people now. Um, it's of little micro companies dyeing. It's really fantastic. And it is there for anyone to do. Now, Kate, I know that your grandfather ran a dye works in Leek. Leek is a market town in the Staffordshire Moorlands in the UK. And it's actually the closest town to, to where I now live. Can you just tell me a little bit more about the recent history, about your connection to the, the heritage, to Leek's heritage of dyeing? 
I was delighted when I first met you to hear you from League because obviously this links directly back to my great grandfather, John Tompkinson. And he was a chemist and he was from Staffordshire and he trained with the world renowned uh, Sir Thomas Wardle, who collaborated with William Morris. And he learnt his trade there. And he was a very, very good dyer. He was a very, very good chemist. And he then went and set up his own dye works called the Premier Dyers and Finishers. They were very, very successful with what they did. The water had brilliant pH level. And in his factory, you know, he would have used all of these chemicals that we're talking about that were discovered, things like azo dyes. And sadly, that was the cause of his demise. Um, He died at 52, same age as me now, because he died of lung cancer. And this was, I'm sure, a direct correlation with the chemicals that he was inhaling. And I think this very much became part of my, my mantra, why I wanted to research natural dyes in more depth. And I was really given that opportunity in lockdown because, you know, I had the time, it was spring, the plants were flowering. I had this wonderful abundance of nature I could tap into. I could forage and pick and learn and dye and try. And I was trying with different fibers, cellulose fibers, protein fibers, seeing what I could get. And I was literally like a, a child in a, in a playground. And I think it's that connection with nature, which I think is so important. We lose that with chemical dyeing. And also learning how much water was used. Yeah. Thank you, Kate. And, you know, it was the softness and the purity of the river Chernit that, that runs through Leek that made the dye industry here gain its global reputation. I mean, this is the town where Queen Victoria had the fabric dyed for her morning wear. As she regarded the raven black dye that was developed in Joshua Wardle's dye works as the only true black. And you've just talked about Joshua's son, Thomas, and this is where William Morris first came to experiment in dyeing and printing with natural dyes. And Thomas Wardle really disliked those new man-made colours. He'd made several visits to India and he'd started to, to experiment with traditional dye recipes. And I think it's interesting, you know, people talk about William Morris almost apprenticing himself out to Thomas Wardle. So they experimented and eventually here in Leek, they were producing all of Morris's or most of Morris's embroidery silks, carpet wools, cotton yarns, and printing his his textile designs that were sold in some of the foremost stores around the world. And before long, Leek began attracting other eminent names. I mean, John Ruskin called Leek a centre of art and science, a patron of culture and beauty, and the home of love and kindness and earnest work. And Oscar Wilde said that in no town in England was a greater work being done in the cause of decorative art. But I think for William Morris, as you've touched on already, Kate, Leek epitomised both the best and the worst of the textile industry. On the one hand, he loved its art and its manufacturing, but he hated the commerce, he hated the money-making, and he called the factories here temples of overcrowding, which kept the same person cranking a handle for 10 hours a day. And he also started to see the damage that was being done to the landscape. He talked about the poisoned air, the polluted water, the industrial waste all of which he believed to be the symptoms of the evils of the fashion industry. Now, we talked about the River Chernet being famed for the purity of its water, but by the time we got to the 20th century, it was said to be one of the most polluted rivers in the whole of Europe. The cause of this? Well, 
we could say it was the dyes. My friend Jeffrey, who was a dye works apprentice back in 1955, told me the other day how the river used to change colour every day, depending on what was being dyed upstream. But I think I know what William Morris would have said, because for him, it was greed, competition and profit that made the rivers run with effluent. And we know that this is still happening today. The only difference is that it's happening somewhere else in the world. So Kate and I have both talked about our connection to to textiles. Lottie, could you tell us a little bit about your connection to textiles? Sorry to disappoint you, but I don't have quite such an illustrious um, (laughs) textile history in my family. But I have always loved textiles and they've always been a source of real fascination. Wherever I've travelled in the world, I've always collected textiles and textiles have been the thing, the memento that I've always brought home, be it canthers from India or kimonos from Japan. And when I moved to Vietnam in my 20s, this hobby became an obsession. I just... I was working as a print designer in textiles and I I was just so overwhelmed by this amazing new tropical world that I'd found myself in. And I was also amazed and delighted by all the incredible textile craft and industry within Vietnam, the silks and the indigo and hemp, which became the beginnings of the Chelsea Garden. At the time, the area of textiles that I was working in was very much on print. And as I said, all of these prints that I was designing suddenly had banana leaves in them and bamboo because I just couldn't help but absorb all this beauty around me. But then I did this trip. We used to go traveling around Vietnam at the weekends and we went up to the the north of Vietnam, which is um, an area called Sapa. It's home to an ethnic community there called the Hmong. And we did this lovely long trek with them and we stayed in local homesteads. And on one of these trips, We stayed with this family who, alongside all of their veggies growing outside, they were growing hemp and indigo to make clothes. And I had this amazing eureka moment where it sounds so obvious now, but I just hadn't quite seen it. The point made quite so literally that they were growing the clothes that they wear outside their kitchen door. And I just thought, my God, this is where clothes come from. This is the connection. And it's so far removed from where we are in the West. And it was so far removed even from what I was doing and what I was working on in Vietnam. So that was a real turning point. And it also was the turning point that kind of led me from textiles to gardens and plants. I agree with that, Lottie. I think so many of us feel that that disconnection today. Yeah, it's a real disconnection. And we have completely lost that understanding of where things come from, not just in clothes, but particularly in clothes. And it's something that we have, I suppose, all got a bit more used to in terms of finding out where our food comes from. But it's still very opaque when it comes to what we wear. I also think there was something so profoundly simple about their approach to how they design and they create that was innately sustainable. So they worked with the resources that they had available and were really creative with those resources. They had two ingredients, hemp and indigo, and they made these incredibly beautiful and intricate textiles by pleating them and batiking them and embroidering them and weaving them in different ways. Yet we've got all of this choice and we can have whatever we want shipped from whatever corner of the globe, yet we come up with really quite banal things in comparison. 
And I think this message, this idea of working with what we've got, with things that are abundant, that we have on our doorstep, maybe things that are waste, is certainly been the mantra for the garden that we're doing at Chelsea. But I think is probably a much more sustainable way to work. And not only is it more sustainable, it's actually, for me anyway, through this process, been extremely enlightening and enjoyable because it sort of turns the whole design process on its head rather than thinking, what do I want to create and having a vision of it from the outset. You start with, what have I got? And design from there and innovate with that. And you don't always know what you're going to get at the end of it. But that's kind of part of the joy and the fun of it. So I think there's a lot to be learnt from the way people, I don't want to speak for the whole of Vietnam, but certainly this community in northern Vietnam, how they approach uh, what they have on their doorstep. I think, you know, there's a huge amount to learn. And I can certainly testify to how beautiful those textiles are because I saw one on your wall, that incredible skirt that you have. So I think it you know, just shows how much beauty you can make out of two ingredients. So Kate, when did you first start to fall in love with natural dyes and why do you think they have such value? So for me, I'd already done my degree in textiles. I then went on to do my study in MA in a little bit more detail. And, and it was then that when I was at St. Martin's, I really did discover the more sinister side of fashion. And I wrote my thesis on sort of sustainability and eco-textiles. But then I went into designing and I put that to one side. And as I mentioned before, it was really was lockdown that gave me that chance to, to play, to really, really enjoy experimenting with colour, getting my hands dirty, you look at a dyer's hands and they're always absolutely filthy. I'm sure Lottie's the same as a gardener, you know, <laughs> always with your hands in the dirt. But, you know, that's joyful. Having dirty hands, it's like you you know that person has really been having fun and enjoying themselves and playing. And colour is just so wonderful. It's a way of expressing yourself. And discovering new colours is just so very exciting. You know, it's just that exploring colour taking stuff from nature but very very respectfully because you know when you're foraging you don't want to overpick you want to make sure you leave stuff for the birds but when you do find that one color that is so phenomenal you get really really excited about it and then all of those sensible things go out of the window about whether they're fugitive or not so a fugitive dye is one that doesn't last very long it's not color fast it's not light fast but that doesn't really matter when you're playing with color you know you just are finding these wonderful colors the wonderful colour combinations as well. And the thing about nature is you can put any one of those colours together and they just sit well. You're not spending hours, you know, with a Pantone book trying to put certain shades together for a season. Nature just produces wonderful colours that do sit very, very well together. So Kate, how do you fix dyes to clothing? That's, it's a great question. Some plant matters have more tannin in them. Some plants are able to hold the colour a little bit more. But what we do in dyeing is we actually use a mordant. So um, mordare is from the Latin word to bite. And it helps the colour actually fix, bite onto the, the, the fibre. And it just makes that colour last much, much longer. So traditionally, so in, in the Iron Age, they'd have used gall nut from a, a gall wasp and they lay their eggs in the oak tree and the oak tree actually starts to react with this and it produces something we call a gall and these are then picked once the, the wasps have, have hatched their way out. We use the gall nut as a mordant and it's very rich in tannant but now we use things like alum lactate 
previously we'd have used sort of iron and tin, but those are sort of quite heavy chemical based. So we don't use those anymore. But at home, you can use a soya milk. You can actually soak your soya beans and make your own mordant. No chemicals needed. I think also what's so amazing about the process is this element of surprise that you don't know what's going to happen. And I think so much now is a known certainty. We design kind of knowing what it's going to look like at the end all the time. And I love the experimentation element of it. Mm -hmm. And there is absolutely a surprise element. I mean, you two came over to the studio one day and we had a little play, didn't we? And um, we were just sort of pretty much putting everything in the pot. But remember, we discovered with those purple tulips, we made this wonderful green colour. And it was a surprise. I haven't colour tested, I haven't light tested them yet. But when we modified that with citric acid, I mean, we changed it from green to yellow to blue with the alkaline as well. Really quite wonderful. Blue being a very difficult colour to achieve. I mean, woad is, is quite an extraordinary thing to dye with. Um, you have to really take care with woad. There are many, many more dye steps there. But yeah, what wonderful colours we found that day. We really did. And I was actually dying yesterday with daffodils. And when I started, it looked kind of sludgy and brown. And I was thinking, I've obviously done something wrong. I need Kate's help here. And then I sort of turned around. I came back to the dye pot, gave it another stir. And then, you know, quite quickly, it transformed in something really quite intense. It's faded a little bit as it's dried. But it is, it's, it's that excitement of, of not knowing exactly what you're going to get every time. And like you said, you know, the way in which the colours blend together. I mean, my very first knitwear collection back in the days when Patrick Uti was making knitwear before Panama hats, I produced this with a community group in Ecuador who use natural dyes. And I began to understand how well those colours work together. Sustainability and regeneration are really the cornerstones of the indigenous worldview, as Lottie's already talked about in, in Vietnam. And so when I set up Patrick Cootie in 1992, it was supposed to be a summer holiday project. And I actually had a fully funded PhD on natural dyes and the symbolism of colour in the Andes ahead of me. And that PhD was put on hold for a year. And Patrick Cootie is actually going to be celebrating its 30th birthday in May at the same time as Chelsea Flower Show. So I never went back to that PhD, but that love of natural dyes remained. But I kind of remember how it wasn't like this everywhere. I was really shocked when I went to Peru. And when I went to the market, everything was overflowing with this vivid pink purple, blue, sort of mass-produced synthetic imitations of the traditional weavings. So I travelled on to Bolivia and I sought out this wonderful organisation called Artesnia Serrata. And I remember I could always find their offices amongst these nondescript buildings that climbed up the steep streets of La Paz because there was a sign on the gate saying, we buy cochineal. And working with Arsenia Serrata just made me realise how many things that would, would normally go to waste can be used as natural dyes. And the artisans used to go to the market to collect carrot tops every week to make the green dyes that they used for their knitwear. And this became part of that cycle of use and reuse. It wasn't just about cost. It wasn't about those environmental concerns of running out of material resources. I think there's also something to do with the fact that we're actually being less than fully human if we don't tune into nature's cycles. I feel like I learned so much from my friends in those Indigenous communities. 
And there's something I find very reassuring about the way that they see history as a cyclical repetition. It's like the seasons. It's like an organic process. And it's practical as well. It's not just about beauty. It's not just about the symbolism of these plants. You know, this is intensely practical. And also, Kate, I was going to ask, I mean, you have got a plan to scale this up commercially. Yes, absolutely. I'm working professionally with Cloth Collective. And what we do is we make some very specific dye recipes. They take quite a long time to develop. So it's like the the old phrase, the mystery of the dyer. We keep our recipes close to our chest. But what we do is we make our recipes per weight of fibre. And so we know we can scale them up. We can make a little piece of fabric that weighs 10 grams. We can make the colour exactly the same if, you know, that piece of fabric is 10 metres long, weighs 10 times more, we know we're going to get the same colour. We're trying to find ways of of harvesting water and making sure that we're using dye plants, bio-waste products, and so that our fabrics, um, which we're having woven specially in this country, are 100% compostable. It's so exciting to see this idea being proven to be commercially viable, because I think that's something we really wanted to show, Carrie, isn't it? That this isn't just a thing for crafters and hobbyists. This is something that really could have practical application in the industry. And Kate is doing it, is actually walking the walk. And it's just so great. It's true. Since I started doing it commercially, I've been really amazed at how many companies have been getting in touch and reaching out and asking them if we can design colour palettes for them because they are so special and, and dye things evenly you know you have to be a master dyer it's a very skillful thing it's very very difficult so yes it does cost more but we hope to offer serve redying services so that people can you know if something's faded they can bring it back to us and that's the way it should be we should keep on loving our, our clothes and keep on loving the things that we have if we keep things in in the cupboard in the dark if we hand wash things with a ph neutral soap we can make these things last a lot lot longer so Lottie, I mean, even my husband's caught the dye bug. He was making some nettle soup the other day. And after he'd finished, he put the rest of the thingy nettles into a bowl of hot water with one of his T-shirts, a slightly ill-advised bright mint colour. And of course, you know, the nettles did dye the T-shirt, but it ended up being a little bit patchy. So I've over-dyed it with taffodils and it looks a lot better now. So what do you think about using, you know, waste? What do you think about using these cooking leftovers? Can you talk to us a bit about, you know, the creativity? You talked about the creativity of those those artisans in Vietnam. So what can we do? You know, what creativity can be found in, in using less, in working within those limitations? Well, firstly, I fully empathise with Mark. I have had similar natural dye hiccups. I think it's a process. (laughs) Um, I was trying to dye something at the weekend with my dead tulip heads and it has definitely changed the colour and it is looking beautiful, but I think I need to get some more tips from Kate. So waste and limitation, I think it's a really crucial part of the sustainability jigsaw puzzle, certainly in my mind and my approach to how I'm going to try and design going forward. As I mentioned earlier, this garden in inverted commas that we saw in Vietnam where they were just going these two plants to make these textiles has been such a an inspiring starting point and really shown me that you don't need lots of choice to create really beautiful things. And as you know, for our garden at Chelsea, we have been really, really strict about creating limitations. So we are only using plants that can be used as dial fibre in the garden, which 
is quite a challenge as the growers and the RHS and everyone else keeps reminding me it's going to be quite challenging to pull it off. But we've remained faithful to this idea because I truly believe that we can create really amazing things and innovate with materials when we limit ourselves. So for example, one of the things that I really wanted to have in the garden was some really established topiary and some structure. But given the time frame that we had, which is only about six to eight months before the show, and given that we were only using dye and fibre plants, the Venn diagram for things that were available was very small. I couldn't there weren't very many plants that I could use to create this structure. So instead of doing away with the philosophy of the garden saying, oh, well, I'll just get in another plant that's not a dye plant. We have created these woven willow structures. So using dead and living willow, we've created a kind of woven willow cube, which is a bit experimental, but I wouldn't have come up with that idea had I not created these limitations. And so willow is used, it's very widely abundant where I am in Somerset, and it's a historic dye plant used for its bark, and it produces the most beautiful, soft, dusty pinks. I don't know if it's going to, we're going to put it off and it's going to look fabulous, but it is an innovation and a new idea that came, was born of these restrictions. And I I'm so thrilled to have discovered that. And I think it's definitely a process and a way of looking at design that I'm going to continue going forwards. Mm, absolutely agree. I mean, I think when visitors to Chelsea, people who have watched it on television, you know, they see these gardens at Chelsea full of flowers, which might not actually be naturally blooming in May. And I remember it was just two weeks ago, wasn't it, Lottie, that we went together to, to see the growers in Somerset. And I remember how excited I was to see one solitary flax flower out. And then you arrived at my shoulder and you were like, oh no, a flax flower. And flax flowers for half a day. I think that's right. So, you know, this is very different. This isn't going to be a a perfect garden in the way that we would normally expect a conventional Chelsea garden. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It's about celebrating. I mean, the category is called All About Plants. And so it's about celebrating plants beyond their ornamental value and looking at what plants can offer us beyond the pretty flower. And we hope we will have plenty of pretty flowers. But, you know, flax, for example, yes, it only flowers for half a day, but actually it does have lots of flowers on one stem. And so hopefully, you know, it flowers for a slightly longer period than that. But it's not the flowers that are used to create linen, it's the stalk. So if it's not in flower and it's gone over, which is when you harvest flax, then that's not a problem. We're, you know, we're still going to use it because that's the truth of it. That's why we have this plant in our garden and we want to celebrate that. It's quite a nerve wracking thing to do on such a public <laughs> platform. But I think it's really important that we begin to look beyond the perfect and celebrate the full life cycle of the plant, the roots, the dead flower heads, the stalk, all of it has a value and it's not just about having something looking pretty in your garden for three weeks of the year. Absolutely. I think that's so important that every part of it has a value. Kate, obviously it's a lovely idea that we can all just romp around the countryside foraging for lovely things to put in our dye pot. But if people are living in more urban environments and they don't have a garden or lovely fields to harvest things from, where would you recommend people start? 
Well, I think you just need no go no further than your kitchen cupboard or your fridge if you don't want to go as far as your garden. Some people don't have outside space, but you can look at things like turmeric. There's many, many spices you can use. Turmeric's a great one. Obviously, turmeric being yellow. But if you go into your, your fridge, you've got sort of cabbages, you've got beetroot, you know, you might have some rhubarb, the leaves you can use there. But I would say these are fairly toxic. So I wouldn't try that. That might need to be a little bit of cold water dying there. But these things are fugitive, so they're going to fade. You know, if you were to dye a piece of fabric in some beetroot, this is the worst offender of all, by the way. This is not light fast and it is not colour fast, but it makes the most wonderful purple. So it's great for children. If you've got children at home, and I suggested this to my friends in lockdown, you know, go into your covers, look in your fridges, get some odd t-shirts and things like this, and you can upcycle things by dyeing them in what you've got around you. But of course, if you can venture outside, you've got the world at your fingertips, depending on the season, of course, you've got sort of nettles and you've got various sort of roots and leaves and barks that you can go and forage. Mushrooms, great for dyeing, wonderful colours there. But of course, the someone who's a very, very strict dyer, they probably wouldn't use any of these things. They're going to use things that aren't fugitive, just have a play. But you can just take a walk outside. You can use anything, dandelions, daisies, whatever's around, you know, try some grass, the colour won't last very long, but you're going to get something and that's the whole fun of it. And once you start, you can't stop because it's so addictive. It, it's, I am an addict. I, you know, <laughs> going for a walk with me in the countryside is a nightmare because we don't travel very far because I'm, I'm looking in the hedgerows and I'm looking in the floor and I'm looking in the trees. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first time we met you, Kate, you'd poked yourself in the eye with a bamboo bush. I had you've been bending over in the hedgerow. Yes, it was a Mahonia. I had a battle with a Mahonia and as you know, a very, very spiky, but I just love the colour that Mahonia leaves make as well as the berries. Absolutely beautiful, that wonderful purpley berry colour. And then with the leaves, you've got that caramel. So I was determined to reach this bush. And yes, and I, my eye was red for about two months after that. <laughs> Occupational hazard. Exactly. <laughs> Lottie, what do you hope people will get out of this garden at Chelsea Flower Show? I know not everybody can visit, but what would you hope that, that people could learn from the garden and the wider work we're doing around you know, encouraging people to ask that question about you know, what's in my clothes? Well, I think that's exactly it. You've said it. I think it would be amazing if we could just spark a little bit of curiosity about what is in our clothes for people just to do that first step, looking in the label, wondering what is that in my clothes? Where's it come from? Does it grow in the ground or has it come from petrochemicals? Just to inspire a bit of curiosity and hopefully encourage people to ask a few more questions of brands, of themselves, of the wider world about where things come from, but in particularly where their, where their clothes come from. I also think it would be amazing if we could inspire people to think about what they can do with less, not always want more, not want to ship something, a material from the other side of the world or have a very fixed idea about what they want it to look like in the end, but just play around with what they've got. Because who knows where it will lead you. It might not be where you thought it was going to take you. It might not be what you had in your mind's eye. But I think, you know, what I've learned from this process is that it's often really surprising and joyous and enjoyable. And the same with the natural dyeing. You just don't know where it's going to take you, but it's so full of opportunity. Thank you, Lottie. What about you, Kate? Well, 
I hope they just feel really inspired by not only the fabrics that we've got what hanging there, which, you know, we've dyed in Kutch. And I'm really delighted to hear that Kutch is a thing with you because I had no idea when we were making that wonderful sort of rusty colour. And I hope they can see that, you know, you can dye with the flowers. So we've got a yellow piece of fabric hanging there. That's from the weld. We've got something from a rhubarb root. You know, this is much more of a sort of rusty caramel colour. We've got the madder and the Kutch. We've got a sort of wonderful pink. And then we've got this nettle hanging. And if people can go there and they can see, wow, I can make this wonderful palette from things I can find on my doorstep, then I'll be really happy. But also as an educator, so I teach at Headington School in Oxford and I teach the Eco A-Level course there. And what they have learnt is actually plant classification too. I test them all the time. I show them a plant. What is it? What is it? Because I think we are losing this art of, of being able to identify plants. We start a little gardening club at school here too, and we're, we're growing our own sort of dye garden. And we're very lucky that some of Lottie's plants after Chelsea Flower Show are going to come over and we're, we're sort of starting um, a flower show here. So I hope that at Chelsea, you know, kids go along and they see these gardens and they feel enthused to start sort of planting and dying themselves and the whole process is all there in one go. Mm, I absolutely agree, Kate. And I really hope that this garden, you know, the garden at Chelsea Flower Show, and then when the garden actually relocates to Headington School, I really hope it starts to or helps to sow that seed of curiosity about natural fibres, natural dyes, and how fashion can work in balance with, with plants animals, earth and water. I mean, you know how much I love talking about the sort of Andean peoples and indigenous cultures. Uh, one thing I was reading, which I find fascinating, is that in the Andes, the future isn't something that comes ahead and the past isn't something that lies behind. And in fact, in Quechua, the, the words niapapacha, it means both the future and the past. And I can't help thinking that actually if we knew more about how we made and how we dyed our clothes in the past, it would help us to colour our future. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you.